Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Has anyone recently been applying for a job? No, you might have done. I think it can be quite a stressful process. You know, we've got the application and the interviews and the fancy clothes and everything else that goes along with them. One of the worst bits can be the ridiculous requirements that some organisations look for. So some of them have like crazy qualification expectations. Get the first one up. There it is. Doctoral degree for a cafe worker. You know, <laughs> some of them have kind of silly experience expectations. Get the second one. There you go. And um, some of them just make, like, no sense. There you go. Sorry, people on the podcast, that's quite a visual one, but there we are. Um, but potentially the worst one are those that are seemingly impossible to fill. This is the last one. There you go. There you go. There you go. Um, so in our passage today, we're going to look at something that seems like an impossible job description and how someone can possibly fill it. Um, so we've started recently a series in the book of Zechariah. So let's just remind ourselves, who is Zechariah? So as we've seen in the previous weeks, he was a prophet in the time after the exile. So to summarize, God makes a covenant with his people. Um, God makes a covenant with his people. Uh, the people break the covenant for over hundreds of years. God brings his judgment against the Israelites, just as the covenant said he would. Jerusalem's destroyed. The people are taken into captivity in Babylon. And eventually, the Persians who took over from Babylon allow them to return. And so a group of Israelites return to Jerusalem under the leadership of a guy called Zerubbabel, a leader descended from King David, who starts to rebuild the temple. So the book of Ezra tells us this, Ezra 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So these are our main characters at the time. We've got Zechariah, along with Haggai, the prophets, speaking to the people after they returned from exile. We've got Zerubbabel, the leader. And we've also got Joshua, the high priest, also known as Jeshua, who we met last week. Okay? So the book of Zechariah opens with a call from God to the returning remnant to turn from their evil ways and remain faithful to him. And then it dives into a series of visions uh, given to Zechariah to speak to the people of the day but they also point forward to God's ultimate plan of salvation for the world. And so last week, we looked back at the fourth vision about Joshua, the high priest. And I encourage you to go back and read that one and the rest of Zechariah's visions so we just have that context for today's passage. So those series of visions finish with the bonus prophecy. So that's what we're going to look at today, the bonus prophecy. Now, I know for me, reading the prophets can be hard as their message comes from us from a foreign culture thousands of years ago, and it assumes like knowledge of the rest of the Old Testament. But let me give you this encouragement before we start. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. 
And so the Bible is not a read once and move on book. It is literature to read and reread, pondering and meditating on its content and message. So as 2 Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that a servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we read scriptures, even those parts that we can find a bit weird and hard, like Zachariah's visions can be, God will yield fruit in us, helping us to see the bigger picture, how it all connects and points forward to Jesus and the redemptive plans of God, growing our faith and our relationship with him. So as we read these words from Zechariah, I pray that God will give us understanding and a love for his word, give us perseverance for the parts of the foreign and strange to us, and an attitude of patience and desire to seek God through them and learn and love him more. So if you've got your Bible, let's get them open. We're going to turn to Zechariah 6, verse 9 to 15. It will also be on the screen behind me, hopefully. There it is. Great. So this is Zechariah 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Sephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josedek. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. So let's pray before we dive into God's word together. Yeah, so Father, you say that in Isaiah, that your word, when your word goes out, it will not return empty and will accomplish what you desire. And so I pray that you will speak to us now as we examine your word together, that your spirit would prompt us and challenge us as we seek to be more like Christ. Amen. So today we're going to look at Jesus, the priest king, Jesus, the temple builder, and Jesus, the gatherer of nations. So this passage opens with the word of the Lord coming to Zechariah, as it says in verse 9. So just an Old Testament tip for anyone reading. If you see the word Lord in all capitals, this is the Hebrew word for the personal name of God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, Yahweh. The reason it's translated Lord in all capitals is that pious Jews at the time wanted to preserve the sacred name. And so they stopped saying it aloud, instead saying the Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai. So when people translated the Bible into English, they decided to keep up this tradition. So when we see this word Lord in all capitals, this is the name of the personal God, Yahweh. And so the word of Yahweh comes to Zechariah and says, verse 10, take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown. And so we've got these three Israelites with hard to say names. They return into Jerusalem from Babylon with gold and silver, probably a gift from the Israelites that are remaining in exile. And they take it to some fourth guy who is going to make it into a crown. Great, so we, we have this crown, um, but who is it for? That's the question. So let's keep going with verse 11. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of, drumroll, the high priest, Joshua, son of Josedak. So this is the point to those of you who are sipping your tea or coffee, you should be going, you know, spitting out of surprise. This is the record scratch moment, okay? This crown is a symbol of royalty. Quick Bible quiz, which tribe is the royal line from? 
Judah, thanks, Lucia. <laughs> it's Judah, great. And all dedicated readers of the Torah in Zechariah's time would know that the royal line is from the tribe of Judah. This was established all the way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, when Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. So this is what he says to Judah in Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And then that's later confirmed when Israel gets a king, David, and God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. This is what it says. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so it should be the son of David from the line of Judah who should be given the crown. And yet Joshua was a priest. Second Bible quiz, what tribe were the priests from? Thanks, Alicia. Get you here every week. Um, so yeah, it's Levi, not Judah. Okay? So imagine you're an Israelite when this happens. You know, you've just been led back from Israel. Um, you have the great prophecies and promises echoing around in your head. And then you see Joshua, the high priest, a Levite, being crowned. It's like, do you think there was like maybe a more obvious choice? I don't know, maybe the, you know, the strong godly leader like over there in Jerusalem, currently building the temple just so happens to be the grandson of the last king of Israel before they were exiled. So that means line of Judah, son of David. You know, that guy's Zerubbabel, maybe him. And yet God, through Zechariah, decides to crown Joshua and not Zerubbabel. And that's no slight to Zerubbabel, you know. In Haggai 2, he's called God's signaling, his chosen one. He's a strong, godly leader, and yet he's not the descendant of David who will reestablish the monarchy as God's chosen king. So what's the point? Why is Joshua crowned? Is Joshua meant to be a ruler instead? Well, ultimately, no. In verse 14, we see that the crown is removed from Joshua and placed in the temple as a memorial for the people. So what does that mean? This means that this was a symbolic crowning meant to make a point. So the reason Joshua is crowned is to tell the Israelites the future ruler is coming, God's chosen servant that will reign on the throne forever, and they will be a king and also like Joshua, a priest. You know, as it says in verse 13, and he will be a priest on his throne. And so this is the second time you God-fearing Israelites should be spitting out your tea. You know, the stories of your ancestors warn you what has previously happened when a king has tried to make themselves a priest as well. If you cast your mind back to 2 Chronicles 26, it tells the story of Uzziah, king of Judah. He becomes prideful, enters the temple to burn incense. That's the job of the priest. And ultimately, he is struck down with leprosy for his disobedience to God. And yet here in Zechariah, God is saying that the ruler will be both king, the ruler of the people, and a priest, the one who makes sacrifice for the people in atonement for sin, the mediator between God and man, bringing harmony harmony between both roles, as it says in verse 13. And so this is the seemingly impossible job description. Who could possibly fill this role? So let's keep going, verse 12. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. And so what we see is Joshua is crowned, and then he's given a bit of a weird nickname, a tree limb, the branch. 
And so this may seem a bit strange to call someone, um, but ultimately to the Israelites of the day, they would see this word, the branch. They'd be making their mind explode, jump all over the place, the brain hyperlinks to other parts of the scriptures that talk about the branch as well. So does anyone know where the branch has appeared before? Anyone listening last week, maybe? It was last week, yeah. The most recent time. It was about a page ago, chapter 3, which we looked at last week. So chapter 3, verse 8 says this. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, you are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. So Zechariah tells us that this branch is God's servant. Okay? And the branch is mentioned multiple times elsewhere in the scriptures, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah. Let's just quickly follow one of those hyperlinks to Jeremiah, just one of them. So this is Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name of which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. And so the prophets reveal that the branch is the glory of the people of Israel from the line of David. The spirit of Yahweh, the Lord, will be on him. There will be a just king, a righteous saviour. And the branch who is the one who is to come, the one the Israelites have been waiting for, the one called the Messiah. And yet the Old Testament ends with no one who can claim the title of the branch. However, the New Testament has an answer, and yes, it is the Sunday school answer. Yeah, great, there we are. Great. So let's look at the New Testament quickly. Let's look at how it starts. Matthew 1.1, literally the first verse. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that means Jesus, he's from the line of David, the line of Judah. He can be king. And then Gabriel says this to Mary in Luke 1. He will be a great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so Jesus did not come to reestablish a physical kingdom of Israel like the Jews of his time expected. But he came to establish the everlasting kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so by his conquering of death through the cross and the resurrection, he can claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he will reign until all the enemies of God have been put under his feet. And one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Jesus is king. The New Testament also claims that Jesus is a priest as well as a king. So how can he be both a priest? How can he be a priest on his throne, as verse 13 of the passage says? You know, Jesus was not a Levite. Uh, he couldn't be a Levitical priest. So that means Jesus has to be a priest in the line of someone else. And so the book of Hebrews tells us that he is in the line of the first priest king we meet in the Bible, a guy called Melchizedek. Now, this could be a whole sermon unto itself, so I'll just try and summarize some of the main points. Okay? So there's this guy, Melchizedek. He appears in Genesis 14 as the king of Salem and priest of God. And Abraham offers him a tithe, and he's blessed. He then appears again in Psalm 110, which prophesies that the Messiah will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then if you read Hebrews 6 and 7, this elaborates and explains how the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the temporary Levitical priesthood, making Jesus' priesthood better than any of the Levitical priests that came before him. And so like Melchizedek, Jesus is ordained as a priest apart from the law given on Mount Sinai. And like the Levitical priests, Jesus offered a sacrifice to satisfy the law when he offered himself for our sins. But unlike the Levitical priests, Jesus only had to offer his sacrifice once, gaining eternal redemption for all who come to God through him. And Jesus' sacrifice wasn't a lamb. It was himself upon the cross, once and for all, paying the price for the sins of the world, taking him upon himself, the wrath of God against sin, so that whoever believes in him can come freely to God 
with confidence. So Hebrews 1.3 summarizes it like this. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he paid for our sins as a priest, and then he sat down on the throne as king. And so the New Testament claims that Jesus is both the king and priest, the branch that is to come. And this is great. Jesus is both king and priest. If you love theology, great. We love this stuff. But ultimately, why do we care? Why does this matter? Why do we care? Firstly, it establishes Jesus as Messiah. You know, Jesus' successful fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy gives evidence towards his claims of being Messiah. One of the multiple reasons that Christians have for believing in the claims of Jesus and his death and resurrection. But secondly, it shapes how we view Jesus. So if you claim to follow Jesus, that means you're accepting Jesus as your king. He's not just a good teacher, as many people today would claim, or a symbolic ruler like our queen basically is. Jesus is Yahweh, God the Son, the creator and sustainer of all things, and so has absolute authority over all of his creation. As those who follow Jesus, we should be seeking to serve and obey him in all areas of our lives. And so for me, one area that I felt challenged on is letting Jesus be king in the workplace. And so I'm a teacher, and schools can be a difficult place to be a Christian. You know, you come face to face with the brokenness of the world through these kids and your care. You know, I try and my best to respond like Jesus would, but it can be really difficult among the stress and busyness of work. Then another issue was gossip. You know, gossip is a massive issue in the staff room, and it's so easy to fall into complaining about the kids and other staff members. But ultimately, I know Jesus has called me to be better than that. And it's a challenge to walk that line between being uncompromising in what you believe and your values while working with so many people who believe completely different things to you. And so that's what I felt challenged with recently, but for you it could be different. I don't know, maybe for you it's your attitude to other people, it could be sexual ethics, your attitude to money, relationships with family members, habits you know aren't great, attitudes towards evangelism. You know, Jesus is king over all areas of our lives. And I know when I reflect on my relationship with Jesus, it can be easy to focus on all the ways I'm not where I personally like to be. And it can be easy to feel condemned by our failures and to live up to the standards of Jesus the King. But this is where Jesus as your great high priest is so important. For those who trust in him, Jesus' once and for all sacrifice on the cross has paid for your sins. Those in the past, the present, the future. And that means you're not defined by your past or your present failings. Your identity is as a child of God. He doesn't love you any less because of what you've done or your current shortcomings. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so I know that despite my multiple failings to live up to his standards at work and elsewhere in life, I'm a child of God, redeemed by grace, and nothing can change that. And that doesn't mean I take that attitude of passiveness, like, oh, yes, Jesus is priest only, paid the price for sins, I can now do whatever I want, getting off scot-free. No, as 1 John 1, 5 says, to love God is to keep his commands. And so since Jesus is king, I aim day by day to be more and more like Christ, following Jesus my king, obeying his commands, repenting of my sin when I mess up, but ultimately knowing that my failures don't define me, since Jesus, the great high priest, has paid it all for me on the cross. So how is Jesus your priest today? Do you believe that he's paid it all for you on the cross? Or do you still see yourself as your shortcomings and your failures? What is your identity in? (coughs) Jesus is our priest king. How is that truth of Jesus as both priest and king impacting and shaping your life today? 
the second thing that we get from this passage is that Jesus is the temple builder. So let's look again at verse 12, which says this. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. And so the branch is branching out to build the temple. So let's again put ourselves in the shoes, or more likely the sandals, of the Israelites of the time. Okay? So just put ourselves in that place. You know, I don't know if Zechariah over there has noticed, but you know, the whole reason we came back from exile was to build the temple, which we did for multiple years. It's that big building right there. So why is Zechariah talking about building a temple? So the temple is the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. When Solomon built his original temple, we say 2 Chronicles 7 tells us that the glory of the Lord fills the temple as he comes to dwell in their midst. And yet with Zerubbabel's temple, the Israelites never saw this happen. But just as the crowning of Joshua was an image of something to come, this isn't talking about Zerubbabel's temple, but a temple that is to come. Zerubbabel and his temple are fading into the background as God turned the spotlight onto the branch, Jesus, and the temple that he will build. But most of those people, uh, most of you who've read the gospel, they may have noticed that Jesus isn't really much of a physical builder. He doesn't really build any buildings. Okay? In fact, he walked and taught in the temple that Zerubbabel built. Yes, Herod expanded this and refurbished a bit, but he was there in Zerubbabel's temple. And so if the branch is the temple builder, how did Jesus build a temple? And so as I said, the temple is the place where God dwells with his people. And in the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where God's presence physically dwelt. And so the high priest, once a year, would come in to the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, only after purifying himself to atone for the sins of the people. And if he came in any other time, he could drop dead due to the sheer holiness of God's presence. Now, some people claim that he would have to wear a rope wrapped around his legs. If he did die, they could just, like, drag him out. Um, But that's not actually in the Bible, and the first time it appears in historical records is the 13th century, so it's probably not true, despite making a nice story. Um, But the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for the sins of the people. And that Holy of Holies, it was separated from the rest of the temple by a large, thick curtain, representing the separation that sin brought between a holy God and a sinful people. But when Jesus, the branch, was crucified, he took on himself the sins of the world, the perfect sacrifice, once and for all, paying the price for sin, accomplishing what the temple could not. And as Matthew records in Matthew 27, after the crucifixion, the veil in the temple was torn in two, representing the destruction of the barrier that stood between God and man. The barrier was removed, making a way for God to dwell with his people once more. And just like God descended on Solomon's temple, filling filling it with his presence, we see God the Holy Spirit descend on his people at Pentecost in the book of Acts. This means that the people of God are now his temple. And so as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so the church is the temple of God, the place where God dwells. This is the temple of the branch. 
And so Jesus, by his spirit, he's branching out across the world, bringing all kinds of people into his temple. And so Jesus being the temple builder, it's another great theological truth. We love some theology, but how do we should this impact our lives today? Jesus was built, his temple, out of you and me. And so now we are the place where his spirit dwells. We should be walking in step with the spirit. Have a look at the people sat next to you. Okay? Have a look. These people that you're sat next to, as Peter puts it, they are living stones that make up the temple of God. And Jesus calls us to serve and build each other up. And so my challenge for us today is how are we serving the people that make up Jesus' temple? I'm sure many of you, like myself, will have a story of how someone at CCM welcomed you into this church. When I first arrived in Manchester nine years ago, it's a while, next month... As an 18-year-old for university, I was looking for a church, and I received an email from a guy you may have heard of, Tim Simmons, inviting me along to CCM, and of course, there was a free lunch afterwards. So being the students, I came along for the important part, the free lunch, and when I came, I was welcomed by various people, made to feel part of the church family. Now, for those of you who don't really know me, I was a welcome person's nightmare. I was a socially awkward physics student, wasn't great at small talk or being personable, And yet, people repeatedly showed me the love of Christ. They welcomed me in, pushing through the awkwardness, and I'm really glad they did, because I stayed. I was challenged by multiple people through Sunday services, through community groups, through friendships, interactions with other members of the church. Now I'm following Jesus with way more of my life, and by the grace of God, I'm even slightly less awkward, can just about deal with small talk. (laughs) And so my challenge now is, can I do that for other people? And it's hard, you know, I really don't like talking and welcoming strangers. I find it hard, it can be awkward, especially those who are a bit different and slightly weird. And after a long week in school, all I want to do is collapse, stay in that comfortable place of, you know, just talking to people that I know and get along with. And yet, Jesus calls me to serve others in the church. And so I know I should be seeking to welcome and bless anyone, including those I don't really know. And the church is not just the Sunday meeting. It is the people of God. So serving this church is not just about serving on the rotor, although that is a useful thing, good thing to do, especially tech rotor. Always need more people doing that. (laughs) Ultimately, the church is the people. So how are you serving and encouraging each other today? Maybe like me, you find welcoming others hard, especially when you don't know them. Maybe you find praying for others hard. Maybe you find hospitality hard. Maybe you find giving money hard. Maybe you don't think you can have anything to share with the church. That is untrue. God gives us all gifts that we can use to serve the church. So Jesus calls us to serve one another, stepping out of our self-centered, comfortable places to follow him through service. And so my challenge this week is to think about how you can serve the church. Remembering Jesus is ultimately the builder of the temple and he is with us by his spirit to help us out. And so finally, we're going to look at Jesus, the gatherer of the nations. So verse 15 says this. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. So the Israelites at the time knew they had a special relationship with God. God had chosen them as a people. This was never meant to be exclusionary. Abraham, the father of the Israelites, was there. And when God made his promise to Abraham about the descendants in Genesis 12, he says that ultimately all people will be blessed through them. 
And this theme is picked up throughout the prophets as well. One example from earlier in Zechariah, Zechariah 2, says this, Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And this theme is picked up again when God says in verse 15, those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. So this on the surface, it can look like a promise to those who are in exile, they return to Jerusalem, help to build the temple. But if we look at the context of the messianic nature of this passage, we'll see it extends beyond the Jews of Zechariah's time to those who are far off, the Gentiles, the rest of the people of earth. And so God is bringing all people of every tribe and tongue and nation into his temple, the church, through the work of the branch, Jesus. And this gathering of the nations will ultimately prove that this message is from God, as verse 15 says. Now, the final sentence of this chapter may seem like a bit of an anticlimax. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. So did these promises depend on the obedience of the Israelites? Well, yes and no. We all know that we struggle to perfectly follow God, and the Israelites knew this as well. And yet God is faithful to his promises, and in his sovereignty and by his help, we will, he will always preserve a faithful remnant. You know, if you read Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi about the time that this story is set, you will see that the return from exile doesn't solve the problem. The people's hearts are still wicked and corrupted by the sins of their fathers that ultimately took them into exile in the first place. And yet God, in his sovereignty, keeps some people faithful to himself. You know, we see this, we have this period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We restart in the New Testament. We meet Simeon and Anna in the temple. And Jesus, as Jesus is being dedicated, these two people who are faithful to God, looking out for his promises to be fulfilled. And ultimately we see that this promise of fulfillment of the branch comes along and comes true. And so God is calling all peoples and nations to him, from Manchester to Malaysia to Mexico. They're all being called to himself. So as Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is that for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So God is calling those who are far off from every background and culture into his church. And so the final challenge is this. How are you part of that calling? We've all been called into different areas of life and ministry. You know, for me, I believe right now, God has called me to be in this school. But for you, it could be university, it could be a hospital, full-time church ministry, business, you know, whatever. There are so many people in our city and in the entire world that do not know Jesus and have not heard his message before. And so we as Christians are called to make disciples of all nations. So what does that look like in your life where you are? You know, for me, it's trying to be a faithful witness into Jesus, both to my students and my colleagues in school. But ultimately, God has called you to this city right now. So how are you going to respond to that call of making Jesus known where you are today? And so as we go about this week, I encourage you to ask God how he wants to use you, where he has brought you right now, to bring people into his kingdom. And if you're anything like me, you find evangelism hard, and it's, again, easy to feel weighed down by our shortcomings. But ultimately, Jesus is the temple builder. He is the one that gathers the nations into his church. And as Jesus says in Matthew 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, yeah, we should be aiming to take the gospel out to those around us. We should tell people about Jesus. We'll have success and failure, but we should ultimately pray for those who look, uh, pray for people to know him. But we trust the results to God, knowing that ultimately Jesus is the builder of his church. 
And some conclusion, Zachariah's prophecy is showing us who Jesus the branch is. He's both priest and king. He's building his temple, the church. This temple will be filled up with people from all backgrounds. And so as we move on to the rest of the service, let us reflect on Jesus, our priest king, and his sacrifice for us. And I encourage you to pause and ask God to lay in your heart anything he wants to be saying to you. You Maybe you need God to show you areas of your life where Jesus is not currently king. Repent of those, lifting those parts of your life to him. Maybe you need to know that today Jesus is your priest. If you follow him, his death has covered your sins, that you are no longer defined by your past, but your identity is now as a child of God, that you can approach him free from condemnation and shame. Maybe you need to reflect on your role in his temple, the church. How are you serving and building up your brothers and sisters in Christ? And are you outward focused, seeking to expand Jesus' temple to all people in the place that you have currently been called to live and work? And so these are quite large challenges. And we can feel incapable of rising to that call of Jesus, but take heart, the Holy Spirit is with us, growing us to be more like him, pointing us to the forgiveness of Christ that flows from the cross, enabling us and equipping us to serve those around us. And he doesn't leave us to go alone. We are in this community of the church where we can support each other and point each other to him. And so I encourage you to not just move on as soon as we're done with this. Revisit the passage throughout the week. Seek God in prayer. Talk to others today about what you've been challenged by. How is Jesus your king? What is God challenging you about this week?